Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Corrin, and I'm delighted to host another episode of MedEvidence, Two Docs Talk. And this is a particular privilege today to have Dr. Gary Kate join me. Gary and I have known each other for many, many years. Gary is a local orthopedist, hand surgeon, and today we're going to talk about how an orthopedist views the world of clinical research. Well, Michael, thank you so much for the opportunity, <clears throat> and very happy to be here. That's great, and that's great. So Gary and I have worked on a few projects before, and but before we get into that, let's let's just talk about something that's real. That, that's what we do in this program. We talk about real things, and. Okay. And we're both physicians, but you're a surgeon and I'm an internist, and we've had different training. And our views of research are different based on that training. But fundamentally, there are certain personality types that seem to be attracted to one specialty versus another. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was, in, I was in medical school, first year medical school, there was a professor that liked to go around the room and determine what your specialty would be based on his perception of your personality. Mm -hmm. And he would go by and kind of pick out people. Some people he had more trouble with, like me, than others. But um, you know, there's certain types that will be going into psychiatry or maybe people that don't necessarily want to interact with other people so much might be pathologists or people who uh, love kids, maybe pediatricians, or you're interested in women's health, you may uh, become an obstetrician. But uh, surgeons are generally perceived to be people that – are very direct, uh, sort of results-driven, and a little bit macho. You know, that's, that's the stereotype, whereas internists are more sort of analytical and thinking through things, maybe uh, uh, long-winded in their decision-making. So let's start with that. Uh, did you have that experience, or did, did that impact your decision to go into orthopedics? Well, for me personally, orthopedics, I relate that somewhat to my father. Mm -hmm. He owned a hardware store. Mm, and. <laughs> And the, uh, you know, the bolts and screws and screwdrivers, I think that's my personal connection to, uh, to orthopedics, where I use a lot of the same tools that he sold in his store. Uh, beautiful. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So it maybe help with some expenses during medical school. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. It was in the same city that uh, – I went to the same city that where, uh, where Kate's Hardware. Oh, very nice. Um, and, uh, and where was located? that? In uh, Manhattan. Oh, very nice. In New York City. Yeah, 90th Street. Uh -huh. And I was on 168th Street. Okay. So not too far. You got it. That's um, exciting. But I, I think that uh, traditionally that's kind of the way people look at, um, you know, surgical versus non-surgical. I think that's changed to some degree. I think that uh, we're all very um, interested in evidence-based medicine um, in the surgical fields as well. We want to do things that are are uh, proven, studies, yeah, and yeah, and uh, and, and, to, and to do uh, fact-based um, uh, treatments for our patients. But I do think that we all all us physicians delay our gratification because we all study hard. We mm -hmm. all go to medical school. But I think I think there is maybe a desire, like you said, to see the results a little qu sometimes quicker. Right. And I think you can do that in, in a lot of surgical fields as opposed to – it might be a little bit difficult in a lot of the you know, medical uh, – non-surgical fields. Right. Yeah. And how about the tinkering elements of surgery? Do you think that's important? I think that you have to want to be able to use your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, and be comfortable with that. So I, I do agree with that. And maybe that's, for me, it's a little bit of that hardware connection as well. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> How's that 
do you think reflect itself on inclinations to get involved in clinical research? So for, you know, for me, for example, I actually struggled during medical school to decide if I was going to go into surgery or in, into cardiology. I knew that if I was going to do an internal medicine specialty, it would be cardiology because it's kind of a little bit more surgical, fast-paced act in that sort of way. So I was kind of a hybrid person. But to me, I, I made the decision to do internal medicine because of how rich the statistics were. I was always fascinated with the mathematics and statistics. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts are with regard to that in the orthopedic space and, and, and you personally. Well, first, personally, what I, you know, you, you're what you're exposed to in medical school. So, um, I mean, for me, it was uh, things that I love was neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And I had these uh, instructors called Candell and Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, yeah, very famous. And, yeah. they, uh, and they taught the course. You know, that was Columbia incredible. Columbia University. And, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I really loved anatomy. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, in the end, anatomy won over for me. And um, I just love to, you know, see the structures, expose the nerves, the blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And that's also why I went more into hand surgery because of actually – not trying to avoid those structures, but mm. to actually treat those structures. So that was more for me personally, the, the anatomy thing, uh, the anatomy part of, um, of uh, medicine, which I love kind of exploring and being part of. And uh, that went, over, uh, went out over the neuroscience part. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So we're going to look at something that you're working on now, which is a bit of a, a tinkering type yeah. experiment. Yeah. And uh, we're going to sort of educate the audience about how – you became inspired to look at this particular thing and then get a little bit into the process of how you evaluate that, how you market it, what needs to be marketed specifically under FDA rules, what can be sort of marketed more informally, et cetera. So um, to start the conversation, tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you've done in the OR and ideas you've, you've gotten that have been beyond standards of medicine. Your, your, um, your concepts of how to improve your surgical technique or improve the way we do things? I mean, just to take a step back, there's procedures that all orthopedic surgeons or all hand surgeons do that are carpal tunnel release, uh, creating a new joint at the base of the thumb. But in the end, everybody has their own variations on it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you think what you feel works best for your patients in your hands. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of, there is always uh, different uh, variations and, um, and individual inputs. And sometimes when you're doing certain procedures, you can say, well, I think I can improve on that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll try and write about that and mm-hmm. publish it. And sometimes you can even try and prove it's better, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's more just what's better in, for you in your hands. Mm-hmm. So one thing that um, I'm always interested in is infection rates and mm-hmm. trying to minimize that. So something I'm working on is trying to um, work on what's called a glove-gown interface to more to make sure the gloves stay stable and there's no introduction of potential c- contaminants onto the field. Um, another thing that I've worked on that's uh, just coming to market now is something that allows exposure of the hand and there's something we call use called hand immobilizers in the OR. And um, I thought that could be improved upon from what I use. So I, the company that makes the hand immobilizer that's largely used in this country, I worked with them to improve upon that and go from the current model <clears throat> to, uh, to an, we think, an improved model. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, congr- congratulations <laughs> on that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. 
So this so this gets into a concept um, that is also a regulatory concept, which is how extreme is the innovation? Yeah. And so, you know, in my role of running a clinical research company, we're very focused on the regulation, and we've certainly done device work. You and I have worked on devices together. Typically, devices have what they call class one, class two, and class three indications. And class one is something like very simple, like surgical gloves. So if you decide that instead of being flesh color, they should be pink for whatever reason, then that would be class one. Something that maybe is a little bit more complicated, um, maybe a, a type of retractor or something that has a little new element of it, uh, but is more or less uh, similar to what you're using would be something else. And then you get into class three where you're not getting pretty innovative. And... Um, Devices more and more becoming like drugs, where if it's really complicated or revolutionary, then you have to have pre-market authorization for testing and ultimately uh, prove to the FDA that that device is safe and effective. Just like the new drug process, uh, which we call an NDA, a new drug application to the F to the FDA. So, um, so give us a little bit of flavor for that. So the stuff you're working on is class one, class three. Uh, where, do you, where, where do you draw the line? So uh, what I'm working on now, the, the things I mentioned are external. They're mm -hmm. not internal implants. Uh, uh, so it is a class one. The other thing I was talking about is part of surgical apparel, also mm -hmm. class one. And often, and you can you know expound on it probably uh, even more, which is, if it's a variation on something that's already been approved, you don't often have to go through the approval process once again because it's just improving on a, on a previously accepted concept. Right, yeah. and I believe that's called a 510K exemption. Yes. So you, you tell the FDA that you plan on marketing it, but you don't feel that any formal application is required because it's similar to something that's already out there or a trivial change to something that's already out there that doesn't put patients at any particular risk. Is that a fair? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, if you decided, well, you know, I, I always wondered why the index finger was smaller than the, the middle finger. And I, I'm going to do a surgery now to change that on all my carpal tunnel repairs. That would be a little bit more revolutionary, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a bizarre <laughs> and, and revolution, but first bizarre. Okay. Well, you know, they, they could... <laughs> you know, sometimes maybe uh, equal size could could come in handy into in certain occupations. I don't know, right. but I'm pointing out that if you wanted to do something that was a little bit more outrageous, whatever the reasons, how would you how would you go about that? And that's not necessarily a specific device, device although there would probably be something involved that would allow you to achieve those results. I'm, I'm just using an extreme example of something to help people understand that you couldn't just go ahead and start marketing something of that nature, and then you would have to go through a more formal clinical trial process. So you're talking about, for instance, if you thought there was a benefit for lengthening a digit or something of exactly. that matter. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'd need to... You said that much better than I did. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there are times when we do that, uh -huh. when digits are shorter or they've been mm -hmm. amputated and you have to... And, and so if you're restoring anatomy, we don't have to go through an approval process for that. But if you're looking to alter anatomy- for Or doing if you're using a device or something to allow that to occur. Right, then you have to show, show that there's a benefit to it, mm -hmm. that you're doing something that's going to help mankind and not do something um, that's bizarre and potentially hurtful and detrimental. 
And that's where, you know, uh, research and the approval process comes into play. And um, that's where and I'd often ask for your help in, in constructing the study and, and getting it out uh, um, and proving the concept's a good one. Right. And the purpose of that question is to assure the audience that we have ethical rules for what's considered reasonable. Um, for example, you probably don't even need informed consent if you use a different pair of gloves for a patient, whereas something where you're going to add something, a device to lengthen a digit would certainly require informed consent and go through a formal scientific and research process. Yeah. These days we use informed consent even in injections. Really? Doing injections. Okay. Yeah. We uh, let well, the patient know and get it. So this yeah. is our segue. So show everybody what you're working on right now. And we're, in our sure. next segment, we're going to delve into it. But is this something that you would get a patient's consent for? Is this something you could do without a patient's consent? Right. This is something to aid in completing a procedure for the patient. Um, so this, so there, I don't get consent to use this device. This is called a hand immobilizer. Mm -hmm. And what it's used for is when the patient's hand is on the table, the fingers tend to curl, mm -hmm. especially when the patient is under anesthesia. They don't control their hand. And then it's hard to get access to uh, the areas that you want to perform the procedure on, okay. whether it's, yeah. So this is a very fascinating uh, piece of equipment. And um, I know that when I came to you about my hand problem, you suggested that you may redesign my hand like this. <laughs> and so let's talk about that at our, at our next session. Okay. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.com or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.